Ascot, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Wokingham, Henley, Reading. The voice River Radio of the Thames Valley. Hello, it's turning pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Best-selling author Lucy Diamond will be talking about books that inspire her. And we're recommending books to get to help get rid of January blues. You're listening to Heather Adams and Julian Ashton on Turning Pages. Hello there. Um, every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme. Thank you for joining us. As always, we've got a packed show for you. We're being joined uh, this week by Sunday Times bestselling author Lucy Diamond, whose book Anything Could Happen is out in the shops now. Now, Lucy has been talking about writing and the books that inspire her. And we're recommending books to help you get out of the January blues you might be feeling. And once again, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. Yes, indeed. And don't forget, you know, uh, if you've got any of your little ideas for us um, to get us out of these um, winter blues, get in touch with me uh, and you can email me on Julian at River Radio and any of your tidbits or uh, any little bits of information you have or thoughts, let us know and we'll include them in future programmes. So let's start off, Heather, with a quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently. Right. And I'm going to kick off with uh, this little gem, which is really rather encouraging, Heather, I think. And despite shops being closed for much of 2020, figures show that uh, we Brits bought books in volume with booming appetites for these categories, crime novels, sci-fi, fantasy, romance and personal development right. titles. And these are usually um, big sellers around January as well as everybody's trying to improve themselves. Now, more than 200 million print books were sold in in the UK last year. And independent booksellers have reported um, the healthy Christmas trading um, last year with almost 60% of participants in the bookseller survey saying trade was very good compared to 2020. Now, retailers attributed this success to being able to sell to their customers face-to-face in the shops and not being reliant on their online sales. And in a separate poll by the Booksellers Association, um, it was found that 58 uh, were up on sales, sorry, 58% were up on sales for two, 221 as a whole compared with the previous year. And again, the difference between the shopkeeping peepers being able to serve customers face-to-face um, as opposed to um, having to deal with the lockdowns. Yes, I think that's all jolly good news. Although obviously um, we would expect things to be up a lot better from lockdown year, wouldn't we? Exactly, we do. But sort of following on a similar sort of story, I was astounded that um, Julia Donaldson, you know, hair of the Gruffalo, 
um, oh, yes. co-creator. She has extended her seemingly unstoppable record-setting run of earning eight figures um, or more, which is just amazing. So Nielsen mm-hmm. Bookscan, who are the company that sort of measures sales from bookshops across the year, they've worked out that she's chalked up a massive £14.1 million worth of sales in 2021, which is her 12th year on the trot. She's gone over £10 million, Like a mole in one year old. really really impressive now i think um the best-selling author um in britain crowned for the second year in a row is oh sorry she claimed i've got this right she claimed the best-selling author in britain crown for the second year in the row and richard osman he of the mm. thursday murder club muscled into the top three which meant david williams went down into fourth place <sighs> Ah. And that's David Williams' lowest position in the year end horses chart since 2013. Oh, interesting. So obviously he's doing very well. But of course, what that fabulous figures hide is the difference between the authors who are the top sellers and basically the rest, the rest of authors. And um, that gap is widening in particular. And in fact, last year, I think the average wage that an author earned was less than £11,000 a year. Gosh, really? Yeah, which is really yeah. uh, disheartening. And I think authors have particularly had it bagged because, of course, they often rely on events to support their income. And many, of course, have been cancelled due to the pandemic. Mm, yes, of course. So, of course, if you do see an author out there, buy, go and listen to them and then go and buy their book. Go and buy the book indeed, say. yes, yeah. give them the support. Um, now, we've got a, um, an interesting little piece. Of, there's a major um, a new film on Net, uh, Netflix, which has just uh, been released uh, and is available on that service if you want to watch it. And it's, it's based on a book by Robert Harris called Munich. Um, and the book has just been re-released with a new cover, um, which has uh, taken an image from the film. Yes. Um, so there's a good, what, what we used to call in the trade years ago, a TV tie-in. Yes, exactly. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Robert Harris, um, being a major best-selling thriller author, um, uh, is and his book Munich is the retelling of that critical time just before the start of the Second World War. And it opens up in September 1938, and Hitler's determined to start a war. Chamberlain is desperate to preserve the peace, and he's trying to buy a bit of time. Uh, and so they go and meet up in the city, which is forever afterwards um, known to uh, the world as where that meeting took place, which is Munich. Now, as, as Chamberlain's uh, plane is juddering over the channel on its way back to Croydon Airport, um, Hitler's train steams south. There are two young men travelling with their respective leaders. They were once friends in more peaceful times, and now they're on opposing sides. And it's a story of treason, betrayal, a murder. And is any price too high for peace? Now, the point about this one should remember, is that this is a piece of fiction. So so, so the French, so whilst there is historical um, fact in there, it is fiction. Yes. And in fact, I saw the film. Oh, did you? Yeah, the other day. Very good. Books better. Ah, Right. Uh, Yes. 
of course, the books are always better. Yes, because yes. Robert Harris is just a, fa- a fabulous thriller. Yeah, fabulous author. Yeah. So a new exhibition is now on at the Victorian Albert Museum in London, entitled Fragmented Illuminations, Medieval and Renaissance Manuscript Cuttings. As you all know, I love a bit of illumination, manuscript illuminations. A bit of cuttings, yes. Yes, it features highlights from the museum's collections of over 2,000 cuttings from medieval and Renaissance manuscripts and the types of books these these, uh, pieces came from and the the context in which they were cut up and collected. And just last year, I went to see the Thomas Beckett um, uh, exhibition on in uh, the British Museum, and they mm-hmm. had, I thought, the most powerful, it was a really fabulous um, exhibition, but one of the most powerful items in that were books where they defaced, uh, they were obviously when Thomas Beckett um, became um a, a saint and then we had the dissolution of the monasteries so of mm. course Hen- henry the eighth was very annoyed and was trying to remove um all reference to this amazing saint that we all lauded um, then the books have been cut out or in fact um scribbled over to remove yeah. his names and that was really yeah. quite powerful because you can yeah. see people censoring um that. oh i do apologize that was my phone uh, sorry about that. Uh, yes, so uh, so that is an exhibition at the VNA. Do you mm. can see it? Yes, do do. Now, um, any uh, any of our listeners, I wonder, do you remember the magic faraway tree adventures that were written by Enid Blyton? Oh yes, I do. Oh, they were my favourite. Ah, right. Well, the last adventure at the magic faraway tree was seventy five years ago, and Jacqueline Wilson, the celebrated children's author, has now agreed to revisit the original magical world inhabited by Moonface and Silky, whilst including three new um, children and some fabulous new lands. And they're all guaranteed to certainly appeal to Jacqueline Wilson fans and hopefully to Enid Blyton fans the world over. Now, the first book of the set is coming out in May and it will be it will help uh, it'll be used to help to celebrate the 80th anniversary of the first magic faraway tree story which is coming out next year but yeah. i must warn listeners that it has been pc'd politically corrected meaning that there is some mid 21st century moral finger wagging as standard oh dear mm. well we will have to say i'm sure there'll be a huge success though I'm sure so. And a great idea to get Jacqueline Wilson to... Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, to well, there we are. Yes. I can hear the tills ringing already. I know, absolutely. And uh, talking about tills re- ring- ringing, obviously the Thursday Murder Club has been hugely successful. But in an update of the Sunday Times bestsellers list, which uh, a point we thought could never happen, it slipped from the top spot mm. in fiction paperbacks. Quel horreur. I know. Richard Osman doesn't need to worry, mind you, because the man who died twice has maintained a healthy lead in the hardback fiction list, which is his book two. But other authors who've managed to find a slot in that top 10 fiction list include the newest stunning book from the best-selling author of domestic thrillers, Adele Parks, with her latest book, Both of You, which is now in paperback, and The Russian by James Patterson. I do like a James Patterson thriller. Mm. Uh, That is the latest in his gripping thriller featuring Detective Michael Bennett. 
Oh, right. Well, finally, uh, in the news roundup, the British Library has got a, an amazing exhibition on at the moment, which explores the dangerous Tudor world of plots, espionage and treachery. Um, and it explores the turbulent relationship between Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. And it's in their own words. Now, interestingly, uh, unlike the films that, that have been made, mm-hmm. the two actually never met. Um, and uh, so basically their fates were intertwined even though um, they hadn't met um, they shared um, everything from the beginning facing the challenges of a ruling in a man's world so both of them had their own kingdoms and had to rule with obviously all male courtiers around them. And you can feel the tension building up in these handwritten letters between the two queens. And it shows that um, how paranoia has started to turn their sisterly affection into suspicion of each other. Now, with the threat of conspiracy ever present, communications written in code reveal how Elizabeth used a network of spies. Of course, William Cecil was a great spy mm-hmm. master to trap and destroy her rival, bringing the dramatic story to a swift and bloody conclusion. Um, Now, you can encounter some of the library's most exceptional 16th century manuscripts and printed works which are on display. There's Elizabeth's stirring heart and stomach of a king speech, the papal bull excommunicating Elizabeth, and Mary's 10-page plea for freedom. I must admit, when I I saw the bit about the papal bull excommunicating, excommunicating Elizabeth, I suppose that she just brushed off because basically she didn't care because her father had invented a new religion anyway in the previous reign. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, these sit alongside some um, haunting objects. So it's not just the letters. So there are objects as well that you can see that reveal the complex story behind the two queens' reigns. Um, in its tales of imprisonment and escape. Uh, Queen Elizabeth's speech to Parliament on her cousin's fate. Eyewitness accounts of Mary's execution. And do we meet the real Elizabeth, <clears throat> I mean Elizabeth and Mary in their own words, and enter the dark side, a very dark side of 16th century politics. And it's all at the British Library exhibition, which is currently on. I've got to say, that's absolutely one I'm going to say. I have seen at the British Library before um, a a, pi- a picture drawn um, at the time that um, Mary was being beheaded, and somebody Ooh. had done a little sketch drawing of where she came in and how she, um, where she walked, and who the courtiers were all around her. And oh, it's just gosh. like a little paper and pencil drawing, but it's so yeah. poignant. It's mm. fa- it's fabulous. I think paper. Um, it's so important, isn't it? Mm. And, and often, mm. I think I don't know what's going to happen with. Um, historians sort of a hundred years from now when they're looking back at our age and everything we've done is digital and yes possibly evaporated or there's so much stuff they can't yes. get through it all and you know and if you haven't got a you haven't got an old video cord a video recorder how are you going to watch those tapes exactly <laughs> i know disastrous <laughs> you are listening to turning pages with heather and julian thank you all for listening Last week, we heard my conversation with Sunday Times bestselling author Lucy Diamond, whose latest book, Anything Could Happen, is out in the show, uh, shops now. And I've got to say, it's thoroughly recommended. It was a really great read. Uh, the book is about second chances and centres around single mum Lara and her daughter Eliza as she turns 18 and decides she wants to connect with her father. 
And Lara is forced to admit a secret that she's been keeping from her daughter her whole life. So she's never really owned up to who the father was. So their journey to the truth will take them on a road trip across England and eventually to New York where it all began. And Anything Could Happen is a warm, wise, funny and uplifting novel about love, second chances and the unexpected and extraordinary paths life can take us down. So we spoke about the book in more detail last week, but I couldn't resist talking to Lucy about her decision to become a writer and the books that inspire her. So let's listen to our conversation now. When you write a book, there's a big gap between the writing of it and the publication day. So when you're looking back now and reflecting on the book, what surprises you about the book? Well, I'm always surprised by how the story changes as I go along. Because anything could happen. It started with Eliza neither neither knowing her real mother or father. (laughs) So it became, I thought, actually, no, that's too much. And I I started getting in some plot knots about that. And I thought I was sort of repeating myself a bit with the storyline. So I went right back to the start and I had Eliza and Lara's relationship already well established. And that felt a better balance to me so I'm not a person who plots everything out in advance at all it's only when I'm halfway through the book I start thinking oh you know what about oh this would be good actually this would be more an interesting story so I'm surprised by you know how how it all seems to work out in the end touch wood I I always get to a point in the book where I think oh no I can't do this this is a rubbish book, you know, I'm, what am I doing? I should just go and get a sensible job like normal people. And <laughs> it wasn't until one of my kids said, oh, mum, you always say this. <laughs> I thought, oh, I think I do actually. And this is obviously just part of the writing process. I have to just push through, keep going and just trust that the right story will come to me in the end. Yes, there's something, there's something about doubt, isn't there? Being essential before you come through to the right. So, it? yeah, I think for anything creative, you you have to have something thing pushing you on and for me it is panic and doubt (laughs) but then that said when it sort of clicks together when I realize oh okay this is the story it's brilliant it's always just the most thrilling moment where I think oh okay this is this is a good story yes yes so it, it's almost worth all the the dread and panic I think it's def- definitely worth the dread and panic because it's a lovely story and it's very warm and genuine and you feel these are people that you could meet in the street. So you mentioned that you might want to do something else because book writing is such a traumatic thing. What what would you do if you weren't? <laughs> well, I have had this thought many times. <laughs> so I've gone through several parallel careers. But it's funny talking to you because I did a stint on the local hospital radio here in Bath a couple oh. of years ago. I was a volunteer there and I ended up co-presenting a morning show. Fantastic. And I absolutely loved it. I Honestly, I loved it so much. And I thought, gosh, I really wish I'd gone into this actually as a job it's so much fun so we could always do a job swap if you want (laughs) I can show you there's no money in this job so tell me what would you say if someone is looking to become an author because you've actually been doing you're well established aren't you you this is your 17th book is that right 17th book bestseller you're you know you're there you're established but when you first start it's a scary world isn't it presumably it is. And I'll tell you what helped me start was actually doing a creative writing evening class. I did one in Brighton. It was just one evening a week and it forced me to actually write something every week 
and even worse, have the rest of the group read it and comment on it, which was terrifying, but so useful. So something like that, if you've been procrastinating or thinking, oh yeah, definitely do that one day. I think starting a course makes you sort of accountable to your own ambition. That might be a good way in. That sounds really good. And were you always a reader? Yes, always a reader. Yeah, right from as soon as I could read, I was just hoovering down books, loved them. So what was your first book that you fell in love with? I can vividly remember sitting on the stairs at home where I grew up and my brother was like a year and a few months older than me and he had brought back some Peter and Jane books um, from school and I remember sitting on the stairs trying to read it. I remember the first time the words sort of made sense to me. I really remember sort of thinking... Oh, Jane sees the dog or whatever it was. And it being this revelation. And then I was away, really. I just read all of the Enid Blyton's many, many books. Loved those. I loved Roald Dahl. Yeah, no, books have always just been such a great escape for me. And do you have sort of books or authors that inspire you today? Oh, yeah. I read really widely. I love Kate Atkinson. She's one of my favourites. She's just so good. She, I, I've really looked at the how, trying to work out how she does it because I think she is just a master of the art. You know, she can write two sentences about a character and you feel you know everything about them yes. just by a few pertinent details. Like she's brilliant at that. Who else do I love? I love Mick Heron, who writes oh. some spy thrillers. Really funny. They're, oh, they're absolutely great. I love Maggie O'Farrell because. Her books are always so different, but she writes really beautifully, vividly, I think, about really interesting stories and characters. Yeah, they're some of my favourites. Yeah, and they're quite a range, aren't they? It's, it's interesting to have a wide a Catholic taste in books, isn't it? Mm, yeah, sometimes I really want to read a thriller and sometimes I want to read about a really like intense relationship or a big family. You know, it's good to have a bit of variety. And what books are you reading right now? Or, or are you just so busy at the moment that you haven't got <laughs> oh, no, never too busy, never too busy. I'm reading, I'm reading a book of essays, which is going to make me sound very highbrow, <laughs> by Anne Patchett, who's an author I love. And this is some non-fiction essays by her. And they're so funny and warm and wise. She's definitely the sort of person I would like to be friends with. <laughs> you know, she just comes across so well as this really lovely woman. So that's good. That's called, it's called These Precious Days. Okay, I don't know that at all. So that's good. a great oh, recommendation. It's, it's good. It's only just come out. So that's good. And over Christmas, I read, I got Bob Mortimer's autobiography for Christmas, yes, which is right. really, really good. <laughs> yes. And he's a lovely warm like, character. Oh, absolutely. He comes across so well, so sort of self-deprecating and a really decent, funny bloke. So, yeah, that was a good read. I can recommend that. Very similar to the characters in your book, I'd like to say. <laughs> That's true, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? You've got that very warm sort of self-deprecating, but sort of like wanting to yeah. do the better. I thank you, especially this time of year. I'm really glad the book's come out in January because I think we all need a bit of an uplift, don't we, in January? We all need something feel good in our lives. So Definitely. <laughs> I hope Laura, Eliza and Ben can just add a bit of sparkle to people's winters out there. That is fantastic. So thank you very much indeed. I thoroughly enjoyed Anything Can Happen. So it was thank a real you, joy to read it and chat to you about it. So thank you very oh, much. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Bye-bye. 
Well, Anything Could Happen by Lucy Diamond, uh, published by Quirkus, and is out in the bookshops now, and you should go and get it and read it. Uh, not least because it's a great story, but um, Lucy is obviously, uh, from as you've heard, a charming, charming lady. And the book's uh, very funny. It's uplifting, uh, full of escapism, fabulous characters and romance, hope and kindness. And it's one of the books that will really get those January blues away for you. Yes, no, it's a lovely, lovely book. And these other books that have been recommended by Lucy, uh, they include Kate Atkinson. Her latest book is Big Sky, which follows her personal investigator, Jackson Brody, and it's published by Penguin. So she mentioned Maggie O'Farrell, and her latest book is Hamlet, which of course won the Woman's Prize for Fiction in 2020, published by Tinder Book Press. And that's going to yes. be, that's a great book too. It is indeed. And uh, also, um, uh, she's mentioned uh, McHeron. And one of the books that uh, we, we suggest you you go and read is his very first Slough House thriller, which is called Slow Horses. And that's published by John Murray. John Murray? John Murray. And is thoroughly, or morally, recommended. <laughs> yeah, it's great, actually. <laughs> and Bob Mortimer's autobiography, And Away. It was published by Simon and & Schuster and voted the Sunday Times Humour Book of the Year. Oh, excellent. And then we have Anne Pratchett, These Precious Days, which is published by Bloomsbury. And it was reviewed by The Guardian as a heartfelt and witty collection on everything from marriage and knitting to the inevitability of death. Uh, and it's included in their 50 biggest books for last autumn. Yeah, they're a great selection, actually. Um, and also very, very, very different. And a number of them would fit very well, as you quite rightly said, in our beating the January blues away. Yes, I so, think they will. Yeah, Bob Mortimer, Mick Heron. Um, perfect for, yep. uh, for smiling. So this is the time of the year when we can all feel a little bit blue. The excitement of the holiday season is over and warm sunshine seems to be a long way off. And I think January is always such a long month as well. Mm. But never fear, because there is always a book that will cheer you up. So this week, we're looking at our favourite humorous novels. And there are so many to choose from. And I think we've, Julia and I have picked four, so two each. Um, but I've got to say that um, we kept thinking, oh, let's do this one or this one. And mm. it, was, it was too big a choice, wasn't it? And it was, it was. we haven't mentioned, we haven't <laughs> chosen P.G. Woodhouse. And no, he's often, not yet, but we have now. Yes, <laughs> between us, yes. So he's often seen as one of the funniest writers in the 20th century and uh, one of the few humorists we can rely on to increase the number of sunshine hours in the day, which I just think is a lovely phrase. Mm. Uh, and a comedy book award is given every year in his honour. It's called the Bollinger Everyman Woodhouse Prize. And I just thought I'd mention it because obviously it's something, if you're looking for other great books to read, this might be a good list to go to. So the criteria is that the book chosen must make the reader laugh out loud. And the um, the judges are quite strict on this. So um, two years ago, they didn't actually award a winner because Ooh. they didn't feel there was any books. There were lots of witty books, but mm -hmm. no books that made them laugh out loud so i i applaud that in uh, mm. in these prize 
giving competitions. So let me just mention a few of the recent winners. So Helen Fielding's Bridget Jones's Baby, mm-hmm. gloriously funny, touching story of baby deadline panic, maternal bliss and social, professional, technological, culinary and childbirth chaos. It is and Bridget the- Jones after all. Indeed. And there was uh, Guy Kenaway's The Accidental Collector won the award last year. And it's an, it really is an outrageous send up of the contemporary art world. There's lots of ammunition there, I think, to yes, play with. I think so, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Unmade beds and so Absolutely. <laughs> And I did just want to also mention Jasper Ford. He won for his Well of Lost Plots, which is part of the Thursday Next series. And if you haven't read any Jasper Ford, I can thoroughly recommend it. It's a fabulous alternative universe for lovers of books. Uh, where you can sort of get in and out of books. In fact, uh, they go into Thomas Hardy and there's been a bit of a disaster because somebody's stolen all the comedy from Thomas Hardy because <laughs> right. it used to be a real rib tickler. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. yes. <laughs> and somebody's gone in and stolen all... I mean, it's just stolen all the comedy. <laughs> That's it's, a very good concept. It's a really brilliant. It's a fabulous, <laughs> fabulous web. So the very first um, series, it's called The the Air Affair, as in Jane Eyre. The oh, Air right, Affair yes. is the very first one. And I've got to say, they're all really clever. Um, oh, I think I, I must get that. Oh, that yes. sounds really good. Yes, that would be really good. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Well, right, we've, uh, well yes. we've started. Uh, having said that, uh, we, we, we did uh, discuss uh, P.G. Woodhouse, I must admit, and, um, but um, I plumped for, for the two, uh, well, certainly one other classic, which I think is really quite funny, um, and I think you do too. Um, and, and that's The Diary of a Nobody by George and Wheaton yes, Grossmith. definitely. Which, yes, which was first published by J.W. Arrowsmith in 1892. Uh, and, it, and The Diary of a Nobody is really is a charming novelization of a diary of one Mr. Charles Pooter. And it really is a lovely light read that I really do thoroughly recommend it and if you if, if you don't know it already and if you do know it um, uh, and have read it before I certainly recommend you should go back and reread it it's really good. I've got to say you can reread these things can't you? Can, you? Yes, and you, you always can. find yes. something else to laugh at yeah, or, or just enjoy or just yeah, enjoy it, yeah, really. and, and certainly with poor old Charles Pooter there's yes. a hell of a lot to enjoy. Now <clears throat> it did start as an intermittent serial in Punch magazine uh, and it was so popular that it was transferred in into book form a few years later. Uh, and it's, I suppose, in many ways, is a forerunner of numerous fictitious diary novels which have cropped up in the late 21st century, which, interestingly, you mentioned before, which is uh, Bridget Jones' Diary, yes. which is the first. Yeah. And that um, was serialised in the independent newspaper, for example. And also, as you see poor old Ch- uh, Charles Putin trying to grapple with life, he is, uh, I think he's the inspiration of um, certainly two comic characters um, from well-known television series. One, um, more recently, but still probably about 20, 30 years ago, was Victor Meldrew in One Foot in the Grave. Yes. And certainly Captain Mannering in Dad's Army. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, excuse me. Do these uh, characters trouble- still exist, do you think? Oh, I'm yes, I'm sure they. I'm sure they are there. Um, I think they probably are. Um, 
Well, I certainly hope they are. Now, Charles Pooter is a bank clerk in the firm of Perkup in the city of London, and presumably the firm of it's a firm of accountants or maybe a private banking house. Though we're not really told what the nature of the Perkup business is. Now, the Pooters have one son, William, age twenty, who lives away in Oldham and is a bank clerk there, and will feature prominently in the diary later on, often to Charles's dismay. Now, the diary begins on the 3rd of April in an unspecified year, though, judging from the publication date of the book, I think we can take it to be around 1890. And it covers roughly 15 months from when Charles and his wife Carrie, or Caroline as for her full name, moved into their new rented house, the Laurels, Brickfield Terrace in Holloway. Now, let's hear how they're settling in. The Diary of a Nobody, Chapter 1. My dear wife, Carrie, and I have just been a week in our new house, the Laurels, Brickfield Terrace, Holloway, a nice six-roomed residence, not counting basement, with a front breakfast parlour. We have a little front garden, and there is a flight of ten steps up to the front door, which, by the by, we keep locked with a chain up. Cummings, Going, and our other intimate friends always come to the little side entrance, which saves the servant the trouble of going up to the front door, thereby taking her from her work. We have a nice little back garden which runs down to the railway. We were rather afraid of the noise of the trains at first, but the landlord said we should not notice them after a bit, and took two pounds off the rent. He was certainly right, and beyond the cracking of the garden wall at the bottom, we have suffered no inconvenience. After my work in the city, I like to be at home. What's the good of a home if you're never in it? Home, sweet home, that's my motto. I'm always in of an evening. Our old friend going may drop in without ceremony, so may Cummings, who lives opposite. My dear wife Caroline and I are pleased to see them if they'd like to drop in on us. But Carrie and I can manage to pass our evenings together without friends. There's always something to be done. A tin tack here, a Venetian blind to put straight, a fan to nail up, or part of a carpet to nail down, all of which I can do with my pipe in my mouth, while Carrie is not above putting a button on a shirt, mending a pillowcase, or practising the Sylvia Gavotte on our new cottage piano on the three-year system, manufactured by W. Bilkson, in small letters, from Collard and Collard, in very large letters. It is also a great comfort to us to know that our boy Willie is getting on so well in the bank at Oldham. We should like to see more of him. Now for my diary. April 3rd. Tradesman called for custom and I promised Farmerson, the ironmonger, to give him a turn if I wanted any nails or tools. By the by, that reminds me there is no key to our bedroom door and the bells must be seen to. The The parlour bell is broken and the front door rings up in the servant's bedroom, which is ridiculous. Dear friend going dropped in, but wouldn't stay, saying there was an infernal smell of paint. April 4th. Tradesman still calling. Carrie being out, I arranged to deal with Horwin, who seems a civil butcher with a nice clean shop. Ordered a shoulder of mutton for tomorrow to give him a trial. Carrie arranged with Borset, the butterman, and ordered a pound of fresh butter and a pound and a half of salt ditto for kitchen, and a shilling's worth of eggs. In the evening, Cummings unexpectedly dropped in to show me a meerschaum pipe he had won in a raffle in the city, and he told me to handle it carefully, as it would spoil the colouring if the hand was moist. He said he wouldn't stay, as he didn't care much for the smell of paint, and fell over the scraper as he went out. 
must get the scraper removed or else I shall get into a scrape. I don't often make jokes. April 5th. Two shoulders of mutton arrived, Carrie having arranged with another butcher without consulting me. Gowing called and fell over scraper coming in. Must get the scraper removed. April 6th. Eggs for breakfast simply shocking. Sent them back to Borset with my compliments and he needn't call any more for orders. Couldn't find umbrella and though it was pouring with rain, had to go without it. Sarah said Mr Going must have took it by mistake last night as there was a stick in the awl that didn't belong to nobody. In the evening, hearing someone talking in a loud voice to the servant in the downstairs hall, I went out to see who it was and was surprised to find it was Borset, the butterman, who was both drunk and offensive. Borset, on seeing me, said he would be hanged if he would ever serve city clerks any more. The game wasn't worth the candle. I restrained my feelings and quietly remarked that I thought it was possible for a city clerk to be a gentleman. He replied that he was very glad to hear it and wanted to know whether I'd ever come across one, for he hadn't. He left the house slamming the door after him, which nearly broke the fanlight, and I heard him fall over the scraper, which made me feel glad I hadn't removed it. When he had gone, I thought of a splendid answer I ought to have given him. However, I will keep it for another occasion. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and from these early entries, we can um, get to see a pattern um, being set about how the diary unfolds and counting the many petty vexations of life that bedevil poor old Charles, brought on mainly by his unconscious self-importance and pomposity. Now he has troubles with servants, squabbles with tradesmen, and annoyances with disrespectful office juniors. And if that isn't enough, he has to contend with minor social embarrassments and humiliations along the way. Now, now, one such episode um, it presents itself early on in the diary when Carrie and Charles are both invited to a ball at the Mansion House by the Lord Mayor of London. Uh, and on the invitation, it says to meet the representatives of trades and commerce. And despite its clear indication of who will be attending, Charles is surprised and annoyed to find the likes of Mr. Farmerson, the local ironmonger, whom Charles had an altercation with over the removal of the backdoor scraper um, and to see him at the ball. And, and, and on top of which, Farmerson and has the temerity of snubbing Charles. And <laughs> Charles then makes things worse because he drinks one too many glasses of champagne and falls flat on the dance floor, only to receive a tongue lashing from Carrie the following morning. <laughs> Now, as the diary unfolds, it becomes uh, we become involved with two of Charles's closest friends, which is Cummings and Going, and their shared interest in walking and cycling, though friendships do not prevent them from falling out over trivial matters from time to time. And then we learn of the arrival in the diary of son William, recently dismissed for idleness from his position in Oldham, who announces on arrival at the family home in Holloway that henceforth is going to be known by his middle name, Lupin. Now, Lupin doesn't waste much time in causing anxiety to his parents, who are already concerned uh, by his rather fast habits as his parents see them, and compounds matters by joining the local amateur dramatic group, the Holloway Comedians, and shocking his parents by becoming engaged to Daisy Mutler, sister of one of Lupin's theatrical friends. Now, will the engagement last? What influence will Lupin's friend Murray Posh have on him? What of Lupin's new position with a firm of stockbrokers? And what will the new year bring for Carrie and Charles? Well, you're just going to have to read the diary to find out. 
And as I said at the beginning, it's something that I can commend to you. Um, it's a delight to read, and though it is set in the late 1800s, the vicissitudes of life then certainly echo through time and resonate in our own modern lives. And because it's in a diary format, it's so easy to read. You can do it in short bursts or longer bursts as the fancy takes you. Fantastic. I've got to say that little scenario of two muttons of lamb, I'm sorry, two legs of mutton arriving at the same time. My husband and I once very early on in our our marriage went uh, coming home from work independently, both went to the shops and did our weekly shop. (laughs) arrived back home and Mike realised that that must have happened so when I arrived back home with my weekly shop he'd already put all his away which meant there was no room in any of the cupboards (laughs) for all my tins of beans and whatever it was that I'd been purchasing (laughs) oh dear yes (laughs) there you are so it shows you that the same things that happened then still happen today still happen now yes So I'm going to recommend a book series that is still being published. Uh, So the author is Janet Ivanovich. Just love that name. Mm. And she's a New York uh, Times bestselling author of the Stephanie Plum series, amongst many others. So she's got over 200 million books in print worldwide. And they've been translated into over 40 different languages. And the latest book in the series is Game On!, Tempting 28, which was published in November. So very, very recent. And uh, every time uh, a Stephanie Plum novel um, comes out, it goes straight in as number one in the New York Times bestselling list. And um, and they're all sequential. So the first one is one for the money, then two for the dough, and three, get ready, uh, and, and so on. And... Um, As you can see, she's on number 28 now, game on number 28. So she started writing as something to do whilst looking after her children. And she decided she wanted to include humour, romance and adventure, which all fits perfectly into the style of mystery novel. And the books are told in a first person narrative and follow the adventures of Stephanie Plum. Now, Stephanie is a normal 30-something girl getting on with life. And when we first meet her, she's just lost her job. She's just lost her car. Uh, Her marriage has uh, gone by the wayside. And if she doesn't raise some cash, she's about to lose her apartment uh, as well. So what is a girl to do? So it just so happens that her cousin Vinny, who's a bit of a sleazeball, runs a bond and a, a bond enforcement agency. Sort of what would what he did is he would give bail to somebody who's uh, committed a crime. They say, right, well, you know, go come to court in a week's time and pay this money to to make sure that you arrive. So this is what he does. He loans out that money. And then, of course, people don't necessarily turn up. And so they need people to find the people and present them in court, which means they get the money back. So that's that's how it works. And I've got to say that Stephanie is totally unprepared for what the job entails. But luckily, she has help from a very sexy and expert bond enforcement agent, who's called Ranger, uh, a hooker named Lula, and her grandma, Grandma Mazur, who's always on top of the latest Berg gossip. 
And popping into and out of her life is also a friend and lover, Joe Morelli, who's a local pop, who, uh, local cop, who she's known since childhood and possibly should end up marrying or possibly not. Uh, who am I to give the storyline away? But Grandma Mazur is probably my favourite character. Uh, one of her favourite pastimes is attending funeral viewings and helping Stephanie with her bond arrests. So let's hear how this works. This is a, a section from book two uh, with Stephanie in pursuit of not only her man, but also 24 coffins which have gone missing. I called Grandma and told her I'd pick her up at seven. I declined my mother's dinner invitation, promised her I wouldn't wear jeans to the viewing, disconnected and doing pancake damage control, searched my refrigerator for fat-free food. I was plowing through a salad when the phone rang. Yo, Ranger said, bet you're eating salad for supper. I stuck my tongue out and crossed my eyes at the handset. Just out of morbid curiosity, if you were going to look... For 24 missing caskets, where would you start? Are those caskets empty or full? Oh, forgotten to ask. I squeeze my eyes closed. Please, God, let them be empty. I shook my Levi's and did the pantyhose business suit bit. I slid my feet into heels, fluffed my hair up with some gel and hairspray and swiped at my lashes with mascara. I stepped back and took a look. Not bad, but I didn't think Sharon Stone would drive off a bridge in a jealous rage. Look at that skirt, my mother said when she opened the door to me. It's no wonder we have so much grime today, what with these short skirts. How can you sit in a skirt like that? Everyone can see everything. It's two inches above my knee. It's not that short. I haven't got all day to stand here talking about skirts. Grandma Mazur said, I've got to get to the funeral parlour. i got to see how they laid this guy out. I hope they didn't smooth over those bullet holes too good. Don't get your hopes up, I tell Grandma Mazur. I think this will be closed coffin. Not only was Moogie shot, but he was also autopsied. I figured it would take the king's horses and all the king's men to put Moogie Blues back together again. Closed coffin? Well, that would be darn disappointing. Word gets out that Steve is having closed coffins and his attendance will drop like a rug. She buttoned a cardigan sweater over her dress and tucked her pocketbook under her arm. Didn't say anything in the paper about closed coffins. You sure you don't want to go? Grandma Mazur asked my mother. I didn't know Moogie Blues, my mother told her. I've got better things to do than go to a viewing of some perfect stranger. I wouldn't go either, Grandma Mazur said. But I'm helping Stephanie with this here manhunt. Maybe Kenny Mancusi will show up and Stephanie will need some extra muscle. I was watching television and I saw how you stick your fingers in a person's eyes to slow them down. She's your responsibility, my mother said to me. She sticks her finger in anybody's eyes. I'm holding you accountable. The double wide viewing room door was propped open to better accommodate the crush of people who'd come to see Moogie Blues. Grandma Mazur immediately began elbowing her way to the front with me in tow. Well, don't that beat all, she said when she reached the end of the chairs. You were right, they've got the lid down. Her eyes narrowed. How are we supposed to know if Moogie's really in there? I'm sure someone's checked. 
but we don't know for certain. I gave her the silent stare. Maybe we should peek inside and see for ourselves, she said. No. Conversation paused as heads swivelled in our direction. I smiled apologetically and put a restraining arm around Grandma. I lowered my voice and added some stern to my whisper. It's not polite to peek into a closed casket. And besides, it's none of our business and it doesn't really matter to us if Moogie Blues is in there or not. If Moogie Blues is missing, it's police business. It could be important to the case, she said. You're just nosy. You want to see the bullet holes. There's that, she said. I need to talk to Ranger, I said to Grandma Monsieur. If I leave you alone, will you promise not to get into trouble? Grandma sniffed. Well, that's plain insulting. I guess after all these years, I know how to behave myself. No fooling around trying to see in the casket. <laughs> Who is the guy that just paid his respects? I asked Ranger. Sandman? Someone screamed in the front of the room, and there was the sound of a heavy object being slammed shut. A heavy object like a coffin lid. It was my sleeve, Grandma said. It got caught by accident on the lid, and the dang thing just opened up. It could have happened to anyone. Grandma looked at me and gave a thumbs up. Is that your granny? Rager wanted to know. Yep, she was checking to make sure Moogie was here. You got a hell of a gene pool, babe. A hell of a gene pool indeed. Yes. The characters are a mix of good, bagged, bonkers in a good way, bonkers in a bad way. Uh, Grandma Mazur is definitely bonkers in a good way and she's lovely. You can't help but love her. And uh, anyway, you often find her riding a shotgun uh, to the various bond chasers or falling asleep in the car and things like that. It's, it's just fabulous. And her mother, so um, Stephanie's mum, and, and Grandma is yours daughter is just frantic. <laughs> anyway, uh, the latest book, Game On, is uh, was published in November and definitely recommended. Well, I, I really, I really like that idea with the Grandma where she's, oh, she said, well, I hope they haven't covered up the bullet holes. <laughs> she just adores going round to these viewing. <laughs> it's just brilliant. <laughs> Well, she probably then afterwards, you know, if she can go to the funeral, she'll probably get a cup of tea and a bun as well. Well, exactly. That is exactly what happened. (laughs) Uh, Well, my choice um, for uh, my second book um, is one that um, perhaps maybe a lot of um, our listeners may not know of it. Um, Well, I'd never heard of it. Oh, have you no, not? Oh, no. well, gosh. Well, you're a you're a literary lady, so well, this is interesting. And it's called The Young Visitors by by Daisy Ashford. And it's why I've chosen it. Whilst it's not a sort of rip roaring, um, hearty laugh, it, it is lovely. It's like, but it's because of um, how it was written. Mm. And um, it um, it was written by, um, well, I should say, I was first introduced to it as a schoolboy by my sister Maria. Uh, and the, the charm of, of, of the book is not only the story itself, but the way that it was written. Now, the author, Daisy Ashford, was nine years old in 1890. Uh, the book was originally published in 1919, um, but we'll find later. But she wrote her story in an exercise book, complete with all of her spelling mistakes. And each of the chapters are one paragraph long and practically have no punctuation at all, which, funnily <laughs> enough, seems to be now the modern trend with teachers who now seem to be saying, don't bother with punctuation. 
Now, for an example of David, uh, a daisy spelling, um, how would I say? Well, we would call them mistakes, but probably um, her style is that even in the title where it's the young visitors, visitors is spelled V-I-S-I-T-E-R-S. And where she writes about sumptuous, it's uh, S-U-M-S-C-H, I think, something like that. It's wonderful. Now, it is. uh, Now, the the manuscript um, uh, was left forgotten until 1917 when Daisy, then age 36, rediscovered it and lent it to a friend of hers who, in fact, was recovering from a bout of flu. And it was passed along the line until it came into the hands of, of, of a gentleman called Frank Swinnerton, who was an author, but who was also a reader for Chatter and Windus. Now, Swinnerton was so enthusiastic about the book that he persuaded Chatter and Windus to publish it. And when it was published, it was published largely, as Daisy wrote it, it with the entire spelling mistakes and all. And, which is a coup in the day, I think, the um, celebrated author J.M. Barry wrote the preface to the book now it was so successful now this this i find is staggering it was so successful on publication and this was in 1919 it was reprinted 18 times in the first year alone wow yeah 18 times silver is still available today still published by chatterwin windus now the plot is very simple and is a very charming one it concerned um a mr alfred saltida whom daisy now hang on um any of our listeners who are in this age bracket don't be too offended um but um her daisy describes him as um being an elderly man of 42 oh that's very yes, old very old who <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> pardon me he was invited <clears throat> A 17-year-old Miss Ethel Montague to come and stay with him. Pardon me. Mr. Saltina receives an invitation from his friend, Bernard Clark, for them to both go and visit him. And they readily accept, not least because Bernard is inclined to be rich. Now, let's listen to how it begins. Okay. The Young Visitors, Chapter One, Quite a Young Girl. Mr. Saltina was an elderly man of 42 and was fond of asking people to stay with him. He had quite a young girl staying with him of seventeen, named Ethel Montague. Mr. Saltina had dark short hair and a moustache and whiskers which were very black and twisty. He was middle-sized and he had very pale blue eyes. He had a pale brown suit, but on Sundays he had a black one and he had a topper every day as he thought it more becoming. Ethel Montague had fair hair done on the top and blue eyes. She had a blue velvet frock which had grown rather short in the sleeves. She had a black straw hat and kid gloves. One morning Mr Saltina came down to breakfast and found Ethel had come down first, which was strange. Is the tea made, Ethel? he said, rubbing his hands. Yes, said Ethel, and such a queer-shaped parcel has come for you. Yes, indeed, it was a queer-shaped parcel. It was a hat-box tied down very tight and a letter stuffed between the string. Well, well, said Mr. Saltina, parcels do turn queer. I will read the letter first, and so saying, he tore open the letter, and this is what it said. My dear Alfred, I want you to come for a stop with me, so I have sent you a top hat wrapped up in tissue paper inside the box. "'Will you wear it staying with me because it is very uncommon? "'Please bring one of your young ladies, whichever is the prettiest in the face. "'I remain yours truly, Bernard Clark. "'Well,' said Mr Saltina, "'I shall take you to stay, Ethel, and fancy him sending me a top hat. 
when Mr. S opened the box, there lay the most splendid top hat of a lovely rich tone, rather like grapes, with a ribbon round complete. Well, said Mr. Saltina peevishly, I don't know if I shall like it. The bow of the ribbon is too flighty for my age. Then he sat down and ate the egg which Ethel had so kindly laid for him. After he had finished his meal, he got up and began to write to Bernard Clark. He ran upstairs on his fat legs and took out his blotter with a loud sniff, and this is what he wrote. My dear Bernard, certainly I shall come and stay with you next Monday. I shall bring Ethel Montague, commonly called Miss M. She is very active and pretty. I do hope I shall enjoy myself with you. I am fond of digging in the garden, and I am partial to ladies if they are nice. I suppose it is my nature. I am not quite a gentleman, but you would hardly notice it, but can't be helped anyhow. We will come by 3.15. Your old and valued friend, Alfred Saltina. Perhaps my readers will be wondering why Mr. Bernard Clark had asked Mr. Saltina to stay with him. He was a lonely man in a remote spot, and he liked people and parties, but he did not know many. What rot, muttered Bernard Clark, as he read Mr. Saltina's letter. He was rather a presumptuous man. Well, as we've heard in that, um, Mr. Saltina is a bit concerned that he's not much of a gentleman. So he asks his friend Bernard if he's going to, ha if he can help him become a gentleman. And so this is the crux of the story. So um, Bernard, who, who who's quite a wealthy man, also knows the Earl of Clincham. So he um, sends um, um, uh, Mr. Saltina on his way yeah. to meet the Earl of Clincham with a letter um, of introduction. And off Mr. Saltina goes to Crystal Palace to where the Earl of Clincham uh, is resident because he has a compartment there as Daisy calls them mm -hmm. and this then goes on with the story of um, how um, the the Earl helps him and he says he's going to take him to a levee which is a which is a fancy soiree which is going to be in the presence of the Prince of Wales the future Edward VII and he said I'm going to take you along and introduce him mm -hmm. and he installs Mr Saltina in in his own compartment because he's going to train him along with other would-be gentlemen and off they go to this as a soiree and he's he's introduced as Lord Hyssop because that's the maiden name of, of Mr. Saltina's mother, even mm -hmm. though he's not an aristocrat, and that's how the story goes. And and um, and, and uh, along the subtext is Daisy stayed behind with um, with. Uh, uh, Bernard and they form an attachment and it's it's really a lovely story um though in fact it it it, it does um, it has a mixture of happiness and disappointment um but you're simply just going to have to read the book and find out now there is some precedent it's been it's been it's been um included in an evening war novel which is which um the hero of um handful of dust tony last was attributed as having had it in his childhood reading oh, that's now, brilliant isn't it it's really yeah, yeah brilliant. and it's still in the facsimile edition in a slim hardback published by Chatterwin Windus. Wow, that's great. And that's lovely when books are in other books. Yes, exactly. Yes, and that just really shows nice. you how important it was. It must be like an Eni Blyton book or something yes, like that that we've exactly. all read up when we were yes. little. So have a bit of provenance there. Yes, yes, that's great. That's fantastic. So coming to the end of our programme, so we need to tell you what books that have been, uh, that we're recommending today. Yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, so you're going to start with... Um, oh, The Open Waters by um, Caleb Azuma um, and Nelson, published by Viking. And this wins the first novel award, um, and it, it follows the lives of two young... Sorry, I beg your pardon? Yeah, 
Um, I think. Oh, I beg yeah. your pardon. Yes, I I'm sorry. I yes. don't know. Adele Parks with her latest book, both of you published by HQ. Yes, The Russian by James Patterson. And James Patterson doing it with James O'Bourne as well. It's a yeah. jointly authored book published by Arrow. Uh, indeed, and then we've got Munich by Robert Harris, published by uh, Arrow also. And Hen- Helen Fielding's Bridget Jones's Baby, published by Penguin. Uh, Guy Kenaway's The Accidental Collector, published by Mensch Publishing. Jasper Ford, The Well of Lost Plots, a Hodder book. Indeed, and then there's Diary of a Nobody by George Whedon Grossmith, published by Penguin. The Young Visitors, spelled V-I-S-I-T-E-R-S, by Daisy Ashford. Published by Tato and Windus. And One for the Money by Janet Ivanovich. Published by Penguin. Right. So we look forward to you joining us next Wednesday between 11am and 12 noon on River Radio. And don't forget, if you're not able to join us live for any of our programmes, you can listen again. And you can do that directly from our website. And Turning Pages is also available as a podcast. Just search for Turning Pages on River Radio podcast and you will see us. And next <coughs> week, it'll be the 2nd of February and yes. that's 2-2-22. Mm. So we thought we'd talk about twins in books. Yes. And the twins could be anything, could be twinning, um, uh, literally twins or 